Welcome to Behind the Warrior, a podcast presented by the EOD Warrior Foundation. This series will focus on resources, interviews, and topics impacting EOD warriors, their families, and the military community at large. Hello, everyone. This is Sherry back with the EOD Warrior Foundation and Behind the Warrior podcast. Please join us today for part two of the interview with Ben Redmond, U.S. Marine Corps retired EOD Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast. Uh, This series is provided to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. To learn more, please visit us on Facebook or at eodwarriorfoundation.org. And don't forget to tell a friend. When the EOD technician was taught, you can't beat an IND. When I was first invited into Commander Blanton's office and asked to take over the IND training and form it into a separate division, I said, no way. Mm-hmm. A few weeks later, I was again asked uh, to, to, to head and form the division. Again, I said no. When asked why, I said I did not wish to be in charge of a division that was set up to show the student how smart and tricky the instructor is. And, I, and his reply was uh, that I would have a budget from the Navy and the Army to make the course a reality. I had less than six months to put it online. We could use a classroom at the IED building and have the recently moved Division Six practical area for practical training, as well as any other areas we needed at Stepnick for training. Mm-hmm. So I was now intrigued and challenged. So I agreed to take the challenge. And uh, we put the course together. We ended up with six military instructors and six civilian instructors. Uh, we got input from the NEST team in Andrews in Las Vegas, Sandia Labs in Albuquerque in Los Alamos, EG&G in Santa Barbara in Las Vegas, not to mention some of the three-letter agencies. And the first class was completed uh, May 27, 1980, and the graduates included each member of the instructor team. And it was a team effort. We put it on, put it together, and put it on in about four months. Mm-hmm. And that class is still taught today. I don't think they call it the IND division anymore. Mm-hmm. And my uh, diploma, which all said improvised nuclear devices on it, is... Uh, I don't know if that was ever classified or not, but I know they changed the name. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. It sounds like you had a lot of great people helping you on that project. I did. And, uh, you know, I'm, some of the civilians, like uh, Chris Cherry, he went on to have a stellar career. Mm-hmm. He, he uh, was in charge of uh, the explosives division at Sandia Labs after he left Indian Head. Uh, and he's just a really smart guy. He's invented a lot of things. He's uh, been a member of the IEPTI for probably 35, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, lots of good folks. Yes. And then I guess my uh, next assignment, as Colonel Stokes had uh, promised, was <laughs> mm-hmm. Marine Corps Base Camp with June, the EOD officer. So, and indeed, he had been correct. I did get orders to Camp Lejeune. But after arriving, he promised me that if I would spend two years at Camp Lejeune, he would get me any overseas assignment I wanted. But first, I had to remove vegetation from 4,000 acres that interfered with training. Wow. Yeah, the, the ranges had not had any significant vegetation removal since they were constructed in World War II. And I was told that Major Fulham would back any request I had for equipment, workers, etc. And, of course, in North Carolina, pine trees are the most predominant form of vegetation. Mm-hmm. And they grow up tall in about 30 years. So the result was from the observation post, you couldn't see the impact area. So we had EOD technicians chopping at the bit all up and down the East Coast (laughs) wanting to assist. And we invited and received support from multiple Marine EOD units, Air Force EOD units, Group 2 at Fort Story. And at times we had 50-plus EOD technicians on site working. 
Uh, we also had a dedicated group of civilian equipment operators on site, along with military engineers uh, working in support of the EOD tech technicians. And the approach we used is today in the FUDS program on old ranges being included. We did surface sweeps to the greatest extent possible, armored up dozers, and uh, knocked, <laughs> knocked down trees. Had uh, EOD avoidance support assigned each piece of heavy equipment, and we cleared over 4,000 acres in less than two years. And in doing that, we built three new ranges. And yes, we had a beer bust every Friday afternoon mistakes with fixings provided for all that had worked that week. Mm -hmm. And I did get my orders to third EOD between Okinawa as promised mm -hmm. at the party camp with you in August of 85. Wow. Wow. What'd you guys do with all of the trees that you knocked down? Uh, for the most part, they were left to rot. Some mm -hmm. of the ones along the edges uh, that, uh, did not have shrapnel were uh, loaded on logging trucks and sold for mm -hmm. pulpwood. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. That's a lot of acreage to clear. <laughs> yeah. Well, we worked some long, hard hours through some really bad weather conditions too from time to time. Uh, super, sure. super cold in the winter if you're outdoors. Yeah. Yeah. I am sure. Um, all right, so tell us about your um, third EOD platoon commander assignment. Yeah, well, to say I like the third EOD platoon would be an understatement. Mm -hmm. uh, for, for one thing, it provided many opportunities for visiting other EOD teams in the Pacific, and uh, the third platoon had teams deployed throughout the region. Uh, we had live fire ranges and opportunity training on Okinawa, as well as as well as nearby, nearby uh, bombing areas. And uh, there were joint training opportunities with other EOD teams, both U.S. and foreign. So uh, and after a couple of months uh, on Okinawa, uh, who shows up but Colonel Kushi Ikamoto. I'll be <laughs> darned. Yeah. But this time, he's... Uh, uh, the commanding officer of the 1st Combined Brigade on Okinawa, including the EOD forces there. So, mm -hmm. And it provided an opportunity for us to again work with Japanese Navy EOD at White Beach as well as the Ground Self-Defense Force EOD folks. And we did use our ranges for their uh, disposal shots. And, you know, it's interesting, uh, Okinawa, and I'm pretty sure they're still recovering a lot of ordnance there, but the average annual recovery was over 3,000 tons of ordnance every year. Wow. That's a lot of uh, stuff. So, wow. you know, uh, there were some places that uh, uh, we got to send folks and we got to, or I got to visit uh, that were notable. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had annual deployments to uh, Thailand for a joint training there with the uh, with the Marine Corps in Thailand, and uh, it would always give the Marines that went down there an opportunity to disassemble and inert munitions for training aids. Uh, the Thai were extremely short, and so uh, they appreciated uh, <laughs> the Marine EOD coming down from Okinawa because they, they could have. Uh, some more training aids. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Thailand also provides some great opportunities to enjoy the nightlife uh, <laughs> there. You know, the local hangout in Pantia Beach was the Bonita Wood Bar, which I'm sure a lot of EOD techs had been there because mm -hmm. there are a lot of EOD plaques on the wall. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's also the place where the uh, gold master EOD insignia originated was, was there. Neat. Ms. Yeah, Miss Wood took a, a regular EOD badge and uh, made them, or took it to a jeweler who made a mold and who would then pour the gold into it. And uh, I, I've got uh, badge 001. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, That's really cool. 
I don't know how many of those are, of those that are out there, but someday uh, that will probably be up for auction. At, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Uh, I, I can also remember on one deployment we, we had uh, uh, one of my MCOs who was having so much fun one evening that uh, uh, he went down to the beach, laid down in a lawn chair to take a nap, and the next morning we were looking for him and we found him on the beach and so. Somehow, with the stealthy nature of EOD technicians, he he, uh, he managed to have a parasailing harness slipped up over him. And just as the sun was rising, I can still hear him yell as the tow boat yanked him out of the chair, down through the sand, into the water, and up into the air for a ride around the beach there at Patia Beach. And wow. So, <laughs> <laughs> I could, yeah. He had some choice words, uh, but he, as he was doing that, he he was uh, <laughs> sobering himself up with mm -hmm. uh, clearing his stomach while he was up in the air. Right. And so <laughs> when he came back down into the water and swam up to the beach, besides being a little bit upset, he was pretty near sober and ready to go to work. <laughs> 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 Uh, he didn't need a nap after that, right? <laughs> no, he was wide awake. <laughs> so. <laughs> so how uh, about how about the Philippines? Oh yeah, <laughs> of course the volcano blew up uh, right after I came back, and the result was that Subic Bay was closed, and Clark Air Base was closed. Uh, the uh, but it was not a hardship assignment. And uh, uh, I kept the team down there most of the time supporting uh, the Navy EOD unit there because mm -hmm. we had tremendous amount of grade three work or unserviceable ammunition to, to be disposed of. So they would blow up things all day and they would go out into Alangapo and Subic City uh, at night. And, you know, uh, for those that remember the the uh, the Philippines. There's probably two phrases that describe the fun had there. One would be bamboo grove, and the other one would be San Miguel. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I enjoyed going there. Mm -hmm. So you've got Thailand Operation Yellow Rain. Yeah, that was a deployment down there, uh, I think in 87, uh, where I took a team down to uh, uh, take apart some ordnance that had been recovered from some of the nearby conflict areas that was believed to have chemical agent in it. And mm. uh, uh, at that time, the, uh, there, there was discussion of yellow rain and uh, that had to be chemical agents because it was making some of the villagers sick over in Cambodia. And, mm. and uh, so we went down and we, we took apart some items. None of them had any chemical agent in it. They were all conventional, but it made for a nice quick trip down mm. there and a few days of work and a few more days of liberty while we were waiting for an aircraft to come back and get us. So, right. Uh, I mean, I also had Cat uh, Fuji was a part of the third EOD platoon. That was a full-time team that we kept up there. So a lot of training up there. Uh, uh, I would go up and visit with them uh, for multiple reasons. One was that uh, the CO of Fuji had been the facilities officer at Camp Lejeune, and he was a friend of mine. I took my eight-year-old son up there to climb Fuji while we were over there, and, and we stayed at the camp. Uh, wow, that was a cool experience for an eight-year-old boy. <laughs> well, it was. We didn't make it to the top, mm -hmm. but we got close. The, uh, you know, as you get up above the clouds, you can see all the way out to the Pacific and stuff. We could see this huge mm -hmm. storm heading toward us, and this is in August. That's the climbing season. Mm -hmm. You'll need a windbreaker or something to, you know, near the top 
So we were at about 12,000 feet, a little bit higher, and I could see the storm coming. And next thing we knew, the temperature plummeted about 20, 30 degrees. It was snowing. Mm. And uh, so I, I, I made a decision that uh, for my eight-year-old son that that was the termination point. We came down, warmed up, and as we continued down the mountain, it got warmer and it wasn't so bad, but uh, mm-hmm. the result was that uh, if you fast forward about oh, 20 years or so, uh, my son at Christmas dinner one year says, Dad, we have unfinished business. I said, what? He says, we didn't finish climbing Fuji. He says, I want to take you back to Japan. So, mm-hmm. so we did go back. Uh, I was a civilian. I've been retired for several years, and uh, we went and climbed Mount Fuji, got to the top, and then we, uh, to recover, we went down to Okinawa, where he had lived from the ages of five to eight years old, and uh, reacquainted ourselves with Okinawa. So that that was a fun time. So, yeah. Fuji, so Fuji has a special place in the heart. My son is now talking, I'm 72 years old, and he's now talking about he wants to go back next year and take his 10-year-old son to climb Fuji. Mm-hmm. And he wants me to come along so we can have three generations go up that mountain. Mm-hmm. There's a big difference between 35 years, though. <laughs> yes. But I, I may go. We'll just yeah. have to wait. Yeah. Well, clearly that left an impact on his life, you know. What a what a great memory for the two of you to share. And to have three generations of Redmonds go up there, that would be awesome. And a great photo opportunity, too, Ben. Well, it would, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, my son enjoyed his overseas training, uh, training, excuse me, <laughs> mm-hmm. his overseas assignment as a five- to eight-year-old on Okinawa mm-hmm. enough so that uh, after he got out of the service, he was working for FAA, and he took an assignment on Guam for three years to take his five-year-old son to live on an island in the Pacific. And, and they had lots of fun and kind of recreated his childhood. My son's first dive was eight years old on Okinawa. And his son's first dive was just recently uh, mm-hmm. in Florida. But he is a fully certified uh, 11-year-old open water diver. So That's really awesome. Yes, yeah. Very cool. What a great memory. Well, I have other memories from uh, third platoon. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, we got tasked with supporting uh, recovery efforts on Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands after a typhoon hit. And so, we deployed an EOD team with uh, the CBs on the LST that went down to Thailand, landed on the beach, and they spent a month there cleaning up unexploded ordnance as the CBs put utilities back up, uh, rebuilt roads and things and infrastructure to get the country back on its feet. But when the CBs departed, and came back, we went down to meet the EOD team, and they weren't on board. And the uh, officer in charge of the CB said they thought they needed to stay, but there was a lot more ordinance to be taken care of. So, <laughs> no, they went down the CBs, but they're down there on their own. And uh, so we contacted them, and they said, oh, they're working hard every day. Well, they... Uh, We've let a couple of weeks go by, and finally I had to send somebody down there to bring them back because they were just having too much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And then we did, I think, a first on Okinawa. We had a joint EOD training in 1987 that was pretty big scale. I got the general... To, uh, uh, to authorize aircraft and ships and uh, things. And uh, so we had people from uh, Navy 
EOD up at Yokosuka. We had uh, uh, Air Force EOD. We had uh, Marine Corps EOD from different units throughout the Pacific. We had Japanese Ground Self-Defense Force. Uh, we had the Japanese Ground Naval EOD Forces and a minesweeper uh, to, to use. And so uh, we put together a training package and, and uh, we had a week's worth of training uh, doing range clearance ops and uh, working on the runways at Kadena and simulating uh, wartime type responses. Uh, a demonstration of mine clearing with Japanese EOD from the Navy. And uh, I just had a really good time. Hmm. Uh, okay. So that was in 87. Um, how about with the 3rd EOD platoon? Yeah, well, in uh, early 1988, before I came back, the 3rd EOD platoon was selected to be the first of the three EOD platoons to be transferred from Ammunition Company Supply Battalion back to the Engineer Support Battalion. And uh, uh, I had uh, put together a white paper that was refined and submitted as Headquarters Marine Corps and eventually acted on to move the EOD community to the Engineer Support Battalions. And I, uh, but this provided an opportunity for the EOD technicians on Okinawa. They got to do a lot of things they weren't getting to do. Because a part of the MEW was to become special operations capable. And so we were directly involved in standing up that unit. That was the first MUSOC deployed unit. And uh, you know, after I retired, the EOD platoons were upgraded to a company size unit. Today, there are three Marine EOD companies uh, that participate in, in deployments worldwide. So, so that was good. Mm -hmm. All right. And then we'll move on to my final <laughs> EOD assignment, mm -hmm. which was uh, at Quantico uh, as the EOD officer. And I, I, I had asked for that. And the Quantico EOD unit there has a diverse mission, it does lots of interesting things. And I thought, this could be a good challenge. Mm -hmm. the, uh, and I'd already had a platoon. I'd been an air wing unit. I'd had the school. Uh, so this seemed like a good place to go. And it, uh, it, you know, the mission of the EOD team at Quantico, at least at that time, was to support the military training conducted by OCS and the basic school for officers, uh, support range control and maintenance of the ranges at Quantico, but you also get to support the FBI, Secret Service, and the State Department in their training and test and evaluation. Uh, not many people realize that when uh, a bomb blows up someplace in the, in the U.S., especially like a big one, that the FBI will actually try to recreate it, come down, and they're tested, and they record the testing of it. Mm -hmm. So uh, we owned Charlie Demo at Quantico, which was the EOD range. No one else was allowed out there except for us and the people that we supported on that range. But we also got to uh, support uh, the defensive driving that was done at uh, Summit Point up in West Virginia, which is about an hour away. And so uh, uh, my my instructors, my EOD technicians would go up there. They were all trained in high-speed defensive driving, and they would be the aggressors for those learning to do uh, uh, to drive vehicles like in support of the president or VIPs. So that was a lot of fun. They got to wreck cars, drive high speeds, and and blow things up. Yeah, took you back to your racing days, right? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, and that pretty well completed my military career. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, well, what a what a great career you had, Ben. And 
a lot of contributions to the EOD community over the years too. So um, it's pretty awesome. So you retired from the Marine Corps after 22 years of honorable service. Um, were you ready to retire at that time, Ben? Uh, yes and no. I really and truly uh, love the Marine Corps and I love the EOD program. Mm -hmm. And uh, here, here, here I am at Quantico. And uh, I had asked when I first got to Quantico, for my next assignment to be one of the three EOD platoons or 29 palms. And uh, I threatened to retire if I didn't get one of those assignments, but was told that uh, I was in the zone for promotion to major and that I was needed at headquarters Marine Corps, which would be inside the beltway. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I didn't want to go inside the beltway, but for some reasons, the powers to be thought, uh, that would be a good place for me to go. And of course, the big three in the Marine EOD program that time, may still be today, was uh, the EOD school at Indian Head, uh, the EOD uh, uh, attachment at what we call the EOD facility back then, or at headquarters, Marine Corps, the EOD action officer. And I didn't really want to go to any of those buildings. I didn't want to fall into that rotation of going from one to the other. Because at that time, the officers weren't going overseas much. They would go to headquarters Marine Corps and then come to Stumpneck and then go to the school and then back to headquarters Marine Corps. And I, I, I didn't feel that's where I should go. Mm -hmm. so, but uh, And at the same time, uh, John Boyden uh, had started UXB, which uh, was the first civilian EOD company. And... Uh, uh, and he had offered me a job, and I had very high respect for him after serving with him in Beirut. And uh, at the same time, I was asked to join a new EOD company called EOD Technology with Mark Reed and Doug Mott that had recently started. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, just to backtrack a little bit, uh, New Year's Eve 1988, I attended... Uh, Doug Lamont's annual New Year's Eve party. Uh, Doug had been out of the Marine Corps for five years at least. And uh, uh, we were sitting around at his house. Uh, everyone were drinking toast and celebrating <laughs> the arrival of the new year. And uh, Doug told me and Mark that uh, he was leaving his current employer, Remote Tech, which makes EOD robots. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, primarily because he, he was losing that job. And uh, Mark Reed, who was nearing retirement, uh, suggested that, hey, let's start our own company. And uh, Doug replied he already had a hip pocket company called EOD Technology that had been a training company that he had started two years before. Uh, with a couple others, and so uh, that did become a reality, so I had some place to go, and uh, I was glad to, from that perspective to, to be able to go to it. Right. I'd also been offered a job as I was retiring that uh, would have got me working inside the Beltway. I was offered a pretty senior job with FAA and their explosives division uh, to help um, be in charge of explosive safety at airports and aircraft nationwide. So mm -hmm. I, I consider that we didn't take it. Right. Well, you had options, which was great. And staying within the EOD sort of career field, I'm sure, was appealing. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Did you, did you ever want to go back and serve? Yeah, uh, for sure. Of course, you know, I retired August the 1st and uh, August the 2nd, the uh, Iraqis crossed into Kuwait. And uh, it was pretty obvious that uh, something was going to happen. Uh, I did call my monitor 
has played that I'd only recently retired, and I wanted to come back if there was an opportunity to go with one of the EOD platoons uh, that might be going over there. And I thought the Camp Lejeune would be the most obvious one since they were the closest, and I thought they would be the first to deploy to, them, uh, to uh, that area. Uh, and I, I, I wanted to come back because I believed I could make a difference for some of the younger EOD techs. We really hadn't had any uh, combat opportunities in more than 10 years. And uh, uh, I thought it would be useful. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, after a couple of days, I got a call back and was told my only opportunity was headquarters Marine Corps. That's where my hip pocket orders were for. And I politely declined and reiterated. I, I'd come back if I could go to a deployable unit, but I didn't want to uh, mm -hmm. uh, come back to be inside the beltway. That's why I've gotten out. Mm -hmm. So, then of course, uh, I guess uh, a few months later, after we'd built up, uh, I was sitting with Mark Reed uh, in Picatinny having dinner when we uh, started the invasion into Kuwait to free it. I thought that was a well-managed conflict. We went in, we kicked butt, and we got out. Mm -hmm. uh, right. Are there any accomplishments that you're most proud of? Well, I'm immensely proud of the opportunity to serve with and be a part of a small group of men and women uh, that would lay down their life if necessary to get the job accomplished. You know, the, the military gave me, when I was a young man, a change in the direction of my life and provided a platform of discipline and self-belief that endures forever. Uh, you know, on a personal note, I received multiple awards while on active duty, but in my mind, those rewards were always about a team effort. And, of course, my military service provided me with a college degree from Pepperdine and the confidence to take on any job knowing that I would figure out a way to get it done, which is really what the EOD program was about. You take what has been termed by the newer EOD technicians as a long walk, and you don't know what's at the end of that walk, but you know that when you get there, you can figure it out. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, that's the way EOD technicians are. Exactly. Um, well, you've shared a little bit about what life looked like for you after retiring and, and getting in with an EOD company. Um, right. Any other thoughts? How, how did you, um, did you consider it still a challenge even after you retired? Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you've never started a new company, it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I went the first five months in retirement without a civilian paycheck. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's scary. <laughs> yeah, so scary. Didn't know if we would ever get one. So, uh, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, of the three partners uh, in the company, I was the only one with a college degree. And even though it was in business, it did not prepare us for starting a company. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, fortunately, <laughs> we didn't know enough to think we couldn't do it, and the market was just starting to emerge. The timing was perfect, and the EOD technology became a successful mm -hmm. U.S. company, as did several other companies. So, mm -hmm. you know, EOD technology forced me to learn almost everything needed to operate a business. It gave me a unique perspective about more than just the EOD part of the business. We had taught ourselves about marketing, administration, project management, safety, quality control, a whole host of other things to operate a business. And this provided me opportunities in other companies to expand my knowledge without operating a business, about operating a business and move into senior management of some large corporations. And probably the most important thing I discovered was that inside I was and always will be a Marine and an EOD technician. The value and discipline that comes from that provides a basis for success no matter where you go in life. Mm -hmm. 
and then retirement. I've kept busy doing charitable work. I've been the president of the local Rotary Club, chairman of the board of directors for Ridgeview Behavioral Services, which is one of East Tennessee's largest mental health care providers with facilities in five East Tennessee counties. Wow. That's incredible. So it sounds like that has given you additional purpose as well. Um, what principles guided you in making successful decisions outside of the military? Well, you have to be able to inspire and and, and lead others to achieve the greatest success. You, you can't do it by yourself. So mm -hmm. be fair, be honest, and work hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Simple, simple, but true, right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. And Ben, I know that you and your wife have always been generous contributors to the EOD Warrior Foundation. And why is this so important to you? Well, you know, I've been very successful as a civilian, and I feel I owe it to my military experience. Giving back to my brothers and sisters is something I'm proud to do and able. I have six charities I annually support. All of them require some personal sacrifice from the individual receiving support. This is why the EOD Warrior Foundation is at the top of my list. There is no greater sacrifice than what EOD technicians are asked to do on a daily basis in war and in peace. Unexploded ordnance and IEDs only know they're supposed to do damage and they don't care who is present. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I would also say here the dependence of these EOD technicians. Uh, I think I understand how hard it is when their spouse walks out the door in the middle of the night to go on a deployment or uh, a, a call, it's got to be more frightening where the EOD technician is anxious to get out there and do it. Uh, at, at home, there's a great deal of fear. So I commend all the wives and spouses and children of EOD technicians. Well, thank you for saying that, Ben. You know, I, I, I well up in tears every time I go to an annual EOD memorial ceremony. Mm -hmm. uh, I can't help it. Mm -hmm. Like all EOD technicians, as painful as it is, we all have friends on that wall, and this is a way to honor them. We remember and we know that our name could be up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have an experience um, in regards to the EOD Memorial Weekend or Ball Ceremony that you would like to talk about? Well, you know, I was talking about my assignment at Indian Head. I, I, I didn't talk about uh, in 1982. <laughs> I was in charge of the EOD Memorial Ball and scholarship. <laughs> And, you know, at, at that time, it was uh, rotated between each service. In 1982 was the Marine Corps year, and I was a junior Marine officer on staff. So mm -hmm. uh, I was present throughout the selection of the scholarship awardees, which was interesting to say the least. But uh, I missed the ball because it was held in the fall, not in May as it is now. I had deployed to Beirut, but had done most of the footwork and was grateful that incoming Captain Bruce Knipple uh, agreed to take it over. Uh, we did celebrate the EOD ball in Beirut in 1982, and we sent enough money back from our deployed team to fund a full scholarship next year. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, I've attended most of the EOD balls after retirement, and uh, uh, I fell into sitting with uh, other retirees, <laughs> and and after one ball, uh, you know, my wife and I were driving back to Tennessee, and in talking about the ball, she asked if I had a good time with my friends, and I thought for a moment, and the answer was both yes and no. Uh, I enjoy their company and reliving old times, but most of the discussion around the table had centered about 
those in our age group who had died within the last year. And from mm -hmm. this discussion on the way home, uh, we, we came up with the idea that uh, uh, next year we would buy a table and donate the eight remaining seats back to the EOD Warrior Foundation to sponsor enlisted EOD warriors with a seat uh, that might otherwise not be able to afford to attend. And the preference was for wounded warriors from any service. <clears throat> and we had no idea what to expect. Uh, the first table that we sponsored. Uh, I can remember sitting at the table, nervous, uh, waiting to see who showed up. My wife and I had just greeted two couples and welcomed them to our table. <clears throat> Excuse me. When someone came up and removed the chair beside me, uh, without thinking, I said, whoa, that chair is reserved and you can't take it. To which he replied, the person coming to your table won't need it. And about that time, Joe, and I can never say his last it's name. Delorier. Mm -hmm. uh, Delorier motored up beside me in a fancy wheelchair. And had him sitting about a foot higher than my chair. Without thinking, I looked up and said, damn, you're tall. <laughs> and, and then I realized he was in a specialized wheelchair and lost three limbs. And there was a moment of silence that probably only lasted a couple of seconds, but felt like a long time to me. When he broke into laughter that was contagious and got everyone else laughing. Uh, Joe's on the wall of heroes at the Pentagon and one of the most decorated members of the Air Force EOD uh, program. He's my hero, along with the many other EOD warriors I have met at the annual EOD ball. Mm -hmm. uh, another person at that first table that night was uh, Aaron Hell. Mm -hmm. And even though I'm on an old man diet, I still order chocolate from Aaron Hell. Uh, if you have a chance, his his extraordinary delights, chocolates, uh, he makes and he ships them anywhere in the world, and, and they're outstanding. So uh, I I just wish I had words that captures what the current generation of EOD tech technicians have contributed to our society. These men and women are not politicians but they serve the public without question and at great risk to their life. I appreciate their service. And for those who have died, I can only say we remember. Thank you, Ben. Um, well, I always like to give an opportunity for folks to share some words of wisdom for your fellow EOD brothers and sisters that are out there fighting the fight now, um, or veterans um, that are in our communities. Um, do you have anything you'd like to share? Yes. Uh, be aware of the big picture, but focus on what you have to get done. There's a, a, a TED talk by one of the first wow. Navy EOD flight officers is the importance of making your bed in the morning so you start the day off with an accomplishment. Mm -hmm. The same applies to life. Prioritize your task and focus on the one at hand and be flexible. Mm -hmm. okay. And as part of your legacy, Ben, how do you want people to remember you? Well, at, at my retirement from Quantico, uh, General Ettenhauer said that I was the best blue-collar officer that he ever had. Mm -hmm. I thought that was an original saying until I heard it spoken again at Colonel Dombrowski's retirement down in Florida a couple of years later. Nonetheless, I think it's appropriate for both of us. We both had a lot in common. Uh, we lived next to each, each other at Indian Head as brand-new officers. And uh, we both have come from the enlisted ranks. So uh, I don't mind being called a blue-collar officer. Mm -hmm. I, I think it's a plus. Yeah. It's a compliment. 
You know, the other thing I would say is that while on active duty as an officer, uh, I got more people promoted into the officer ranks and got more people removed from the EOD program than any of my peers at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bottom line was that if you came to work in my unit, you were going to work hard. There was no status quo. It was either up or out. But I knew that hard training is the basis of being prepared for combat. And I hope my efforts resulted in less casualties down the road. Well, your leadership speaks volumes. Um, and uh, I hope folks will appreciate all of the all of the words of wisdom and all of the stories that you've shared with me today, Ben. It's been quite a history lesson um, in EOD, but also just some great thoughts and encouraging words and just what I would consider a common sense approach to just getting the job done. So um, thank you for, for being here with me today. And um, before I let you go, I always like to have a little bit of fun and have a little bit of lighthearted humor or what have you. So I'd like to ask about some of your favorite things. Are you ready for that? Yes. All right. Perfect. All right. Um, what's your favorite country that you visited? Well, uh, Thailand closely followed by the Philippines, but that was one wife ago. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it today. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there are a lot of stories behind that, Ben. <laughs> yeah. Look, yeah. <laughs> how, about, um, how about your favorite actor? Uh, Robert Duvall or Clint Eastwood. Okay. All right. Okay. I love Clint. I love both of them too. Um, you have said that you like to read books. So do you have any one particular book or author that you admire? Actually, I have uh, a couple of books that I admire. Uh, I like to read. Mm -hmm. That's correct. And I enjoy reading things that have shaped the world today. Uh, the one book that constantly comes to mind is Cadillac Desert by Mark Reisner. It's about the American West and its disappearing water. It was written about 1990, but explains the current problem the West is facing with the lack of water. Mm. Uh, and another book is The Great Flood of 1927. Uh, it, it also talks about water in the U.S., and one of the worst and most devastating floods to ever come down the Mississippi River. Uh, hmm. Another one is uh, uh, the, the Stolen Election. And I pause here because it's of 1876, and it, uh, it gives a good eye-opening insight into uh, one of the most crooked elections in our history. Uh, but we've had elections several times in our history and survived each time. And, uh, I hope that's what you get out of mm -hmm. reading the book. And, and another book that uh, that I like that I would recommend to every EOD tech read is Struggle Well by Kim. He, he's a retired EOD master chief. And whether you need a self-help book or not, you'll discover there's a lot of very good information in his book. And it's well written. Uh, I read it out of curiosity. I wanted to see uh, what the book said, but uh, I can only say BZ to Ken and uh, thanks for all that you've done for the, our EOD world. Very nice. There's always something we can learn, right, Ben? We can always yeah. do something to improve our um, our life or thoughts or anything in that regard. So I think books are very helpful in that way. Um, well, I know that you're a North Carolina boy. That's but, correct. Um, what's your favorite city in Tennessee? Oak Ridge. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've been asked where I like to go on vacation. My standard reply is Oak Ridge. Mm -hmm. Prior to my retirement, I've spent, uh, you know, from 35 to 40 weeks a year traveling. And I've traveled to over 60 countries. Uh, 
every state in the U.S. Mm. And uh, my house is located out in the woods. Uh, it's a quarter mile to the nearest next house. And we're over a mile from the nearest paved road. So this is my refuge. It's a, it's a great place. There's other cities in Tennessee that I like, like Pigeon Ford, Forge and Niceville. And we visit those a few times a year. But uh, my home here in Oak Ridge is, is, is where I prefer to be. Mm-hmm. That's great. And how about a favorite quote? Uh, luck is the residue of design. I'm not sure who originally said it to me, uh, but, but it means hard work and smart. Mm-hmm. It, when you need luck, it'll be there. Mm-hmm. Very nice. And do you have a particular song that takes you back in time? Yeah, I like Willie Nelson's. There's nothing I can do about it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And it captures my philosophy for not worrying about those things I have no control over, but rather focusing on the things I can control. Mm-hmm. Well, I when I am on my way home today from work, I'm going to pull that song up and listen to it because it's been a long time since I've listened to that. <laughs> so, all right. Well, Ben, thank you again so much for spending this time with me and uh, sharing your story and all of the interesting and, you know, impactful things that you've done in your life and that you continue to do to help others as well. And I wish you and Helen the very, very best. And thank you again. I look forward to seeing you next week. All right. Me too. All right. You take care. All right. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye.